Hi, everyone, and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I'm Nigel Griswold, co-founder and CEO of Dynamometrics and your host. In this episode, I'm joined by Jim Rokakis, Vice President of Western Reserve Land Conservancy and Director of its Thriving Communities Institute. Jim was involved in the establishment of almost 60 county land banks throughout Ohio and has worked in Columbus, Ohio and Washington, D.C. to raise funds for Ohio communities to deal with distressed properties. He served for 19 years on the Cleveland City Council, the last seven of those as chairman of the Finance Committee. In 1997, Jim took office as Cuyahoga County Treasurer. Faced with Cuyahoga County's mortgage foreclosure crisis, he helped to write and pass House Bill 294, which streamlined the foreclosure process for abandoned properties. Jim was also the driving force behind a bill that allowed for the creation of the Cuyahoga County Land Reutilization Corporation, also known as the Cuyahoga Land Bank. Former Attorney General and current Ohio Governor Mike DeWine recently stated that Jim was the reason behind the, his decision to allocate 75 of Ohio's $93 million from the Rebo signing settlement for demolition. Jim also played an integral role in the U.S. Treasury Department's decision to allocate a portion of the hardest hit fund from TARP for demolition and Cuyahoga County's commitment of $50 million for demolition. Working with the Ohio Congressional Delegation, he led the effort to reallocate an additional $2 billion to the hardest hit fund last December, with $192 million of those dollars coming into Ohio. To date, Rokakis has raised almost $450 million for the demolition of over 40,000 blighted structures across Ohio. He is the recipient of numerous local, state, and national awards, including being named County Leader of the Year by American City and County Magazine in 2007, and the recipient of the Cleveland Foundation's Wadsworth Award in 2016. Jim has been featured on 60 Minutes and has written for numerous publications, including the Washington Post. Jim earned his undergraduate degree at Oberlin College and his Juris Doctorate degree from Cleveland Marshall School of Law. Our conversation covers the history of the foreclosure crisis in Greater Cleveland and operationalizing state and national policy movements. And now my conversation with Jim. All right. Today we have we have Jim Rokakis on ahead of the curve. We started working together some time ago, working on different national policy issues. Very excited and honored to have Jim on the show today. And thanks for having me. I uh, was looking forward to this. Absolutely. I can't, think of um, a better, maybe... I can't think of a better way to spend a COVID-19 summer afternoon, Nigel. <laughs> this is good. <laughs> thanks, right. Jim. So maybe maybe some um, maybe some of your history in the in Cuyahoga sure. County and sure. Greater Cleveland and your in your background and how you came kind of your story a little bit, Jim. If sure, you sure. I hope I don't bore your listeners, but uh, here goes. I'm a lifelong Clevelander. I am a first generation Greek American. My father came to this country in 1951 from the island of Crete. He left my mother and four sisters there because. Uh, he had an aunt here, and they had just been through World War II and then the Greek Civil War, and he had to get out of there. He was he was not getting anywhere, and he realized there was no place to raise a family. He was a subsistence farmer. Actually, he was a goat. He was a goat and sheep herder, but he decided he'd come and join his sister in America. So he came here in '51. He worked in a factory for three years. It took him that long to be able to raise the money to afford to bring over my my mother and four sisters. So he got here. My mom and sisters got here in '54. I was born in 1955. I have two brothers who are twins 40 years later. 
We had a family of seven growing up on the west side of Cleveland. I'm a public school kid. I uh, went to Cleveland Public Schools, and uh, my longest journey away from Cleveland was a 30-mile ride out to a place called Oberlin, Ohio, where I attended Oberlin College. And uh, strangest thing happened in 1977. At the age of 22, I was the youngest member ever elected to Cleveland City Council. I ran on what I thought would be a losing campaign. I was going to begin law school in the following year, but uh, I didn't lose. So I was elected at the age of 22, and I served in Cleveland City Council for 19 years. The last seven, I chaired the Finance Committee. And then I went over to the county treasury. I was elected on the heels of a scandal. My predecessor had lost about $114 million in a failed investment scheme. So he wasn't going to run again. And, and I did, and I was elected. And I served as county treasurer from 97 till the end of 2010 in that 14 year period that so much of what I ended up uh, experiencing defined this last part of my career. As county treasurer, I was gonna go in, I was gonna be a better collector of delinquent taxes. To that end, we ended up passing a state law allowing for the sale of tax liens. By the way, that's proved to be both good and bad. And then uh, we were trying to use linked deposits to drive up home improvements in inner city neighborhoods. And, and then in about 2000, three years into office, um, something found me and I could never have expected it. And that was the foreclosure crisis. I was visited by a group of Cleveland City Councilmen. We met with a housing court judge and I woke up to realize that Cleveland was leading the country in the private mortgage foreclosures. That was back in the summer of 2000. And uh, I was stunned at the information. I met with two professors who were actually national experts, Kathleen Engel and Patricia McCoy, both at Marshall Law School in Cleveland. I came to learn what securitization was and uh, how mortgages were being packaged and sold. And we went to the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland and said, hey, you got to do something. You're the Fed. You have to call a conference and put an end to this. And let's go see Alan Greenspan and uh, all he has to do is say that there is irrational exuberance in the housing market, and uh, that'll be the end of it. Well, the Fed did have a big conference, but uh, I never got to see Alan Greenspan. And as a result, well, you know what happened. The thing took off. In fact, a few years later, Alan Greenspan was espousing the virtues, virtues of adjustable rate mortgages, believe it or not. I guess he liked the bubble, too. And what I was witnessing as county treasurer was shocking. I just saw uh, houses being foreclosed, going vacant, then being purchased by speculators and being foreclosed a second and a third time. And I witnessed an 18% loss in population in the city of Cleveland between 2000 and 2010. And only Detroit, Michigan, had a larger population loss percentage-wise. So by the middle of the decade, Nigel, we realized that it was over. You know, I'm a war buff. I like to go to battlefield sites. And I have to tell you, it's, I hate to use this metaphor, but the war was over and we had to bury the dead, just like the battlefield sites all over um, uh, the, this country during the Civil War. And the, and the dead in our community consisted of thousands of vacant properties. Uh, we had to find a way to get control of them. We had to find money to take them down. We would never stabilize the real estate picture in Cleveland if we couldn't do that. So we ended up traveling to Flint, Michigan and visiting a guy named Dan Kildee, who was uh, uh, started something called the County Land Bank, a powerful quasi-public corporation to take control of property. And we went to Columbus with our version of the Michigan bill. It took us about a year to get it passed. And 
the rest is history. The first land bank that opened up was here, where I served as county treasurer. The bill initially only allowed Cuyahoga County to have a land bank, but it was amended in 2010 to allow other counties. And uh, I left county government at the end of uh, 2010, or I should say it left me. We changed the form of government here to the executive form of government. And uh, at that point, I joined the Western Reserve Land Conservancy with a mission of moving land banks all over Ohio and finding resources to assist land banks. And that's how I met you. That's right. That's right around the time when we met. And and that's when the, the foreclosure crisis was in full tilt. And uh, it was kind of like triage, right? Like the hump had occurred and it was it was really trying to build resources to uh, to address the fallout post-crisis, well, right? As you know, you know, in my travels around the state, I went and visited the mayor of uh, Youngstown, Ohio, a, a struggling town, as you might know. And he said to me, you have any money for demolition? And I said, well, you know, Mayor, uh, we could have. And I started to give him some long answer, and he waved me off. He said, listen, if you don't have money for demolitions, as far as I'm concerned, land banks are like a new car with no gas. They're nice to look at, but they take me nowhere. And I got the message loud and clear, and a couple things happened. Ironically, at the same time I'm doing this, out of the blue, I get a call from a guy named Dan Rutnick, who is a producer for CBS 60 Minutes. I had written, I'd written a couple times to the Washington Post. I wrote a piece back in uh, 2007 about the impact on Cleveland, in particular the, the neighborhood called Slavic Village. And I wrote another one in 2011. And somehow I got on the producer's radar screen. He said, you want to come to Cleveland, talk about vacancies and demolition. They were here in the fall of 2011. And on December 18th, 2011, I was the opening episode of a 60 Minutes episode called There Goes the Neighborhood, by the way. And it was mm -hmm. vacancies and demolition. And I, I tell you this story, that was neat for starters. It was neat to be on 60 Minutes. I was, you know, Andy Warhol said we're all famous for 15 minutes. Well, I got 19. But what was <laughs> neat about that is it just by luck happened to coincide with visits to the Ohio Attorney General, who was coming into a large cash sum as part of something called the robo-signing settlement. And uh, it also came uh, the week we visited the U.S. Treasury Department, where we sought out their help and said, look, you have to find a way, since you're now the guarantor of all the mortgages in America with the collapse of Fannie and Freddie, you have to find a way to get us money to take down vacant properties. And Nigel, that's where you came in. Um, right. You know, we had met not long after that, a meeting was set up in September of 2012 by the Treasury Department. Uh, the people who you remember, Michael Stegman was an undersecretary there. Uh, Dave uh, Dworkin was uh, at the Treasury then, a, a, a Detroit native. And Don Graves, a Cleveland neighbor, native. And we had this meeting that was actually a follow-up on our visit to, to Treasury in December of 11. And what we learned is when we were there, this group of people led by Dave Dworkin and Don Graves agreed with me. And they said, we have to find a way to get money to these cities for demolition. A Cleveland guy and a Detroit guy. They understood blight, right? And that led this meeting in September where you attended. And that's when we made our claim that we could prove to them that if they gave us dollars to take down vacant and abandoned homes, that we would reduce the rate of walkaway mortgage foreclosures. That we knew that people in neighborhoods all over America, certainly in the Midwest, were mostly underwater, almost all underwater. So not only were they underwater, right, but they were in a sea of vacant properties. 
And their feeling was, why should I continue to pay on the mortgage? And our argument to Treasury was, we can prove to you that if you take down vacant and abandoned properties, there is a better likelihood that somebody will stay in that home and stabilize the neighborhood. Now, I didn't know that. It was anecdotal, right? You remember? We, we suspected that, but we hired you and you proved it, right? That's right. I mean, I think it was you and Ed that tracked me down because I had done that work with, with Kildee in Flint in Genesee County where I built out that parcel level time series data system and, and measured those impacts. But I had only done, in Flint, I had only done the, uh, the property value impacts of demolition, right? I, I quantified the neighboring effects of those. But the, the next level was with this study that you guys brought me on for. We wanted property value impact and we wanted to show the, the correlative effect on mortgage foreclosure, right? So, so that, was the, that was the next piece that, that we did um, with, the, with the Cleveland study. And, and those, are, those are both like the infancies of the, of the software now, right? Like it's that same data set that we've now, you know, front-ended into a software that anyone can use. But at that time, it was targeted very precisely in these questions that the U.S. Treasury was asking. And, and, and we attacked those and, and learned a lot about, you know, the spread of blight. What was so neat about it, though, was, if you remember, when we hired you, we had to go out and raise the money. We got it from 14 land banks that we'd already organized in Ohio. They all pitched in. And what was amazing about the study is that in January, and, and Ed Herman was so helpful, by the way, in January of 13, we got a call from the White House. Our little office, thriving communities over there in downtown Cleveland, got a call from the White House saying, where's the data? And it was Elizabeth Kelly and a guy named Wayne Ping, Office and Economic Policy out of the White House. We kind of chuckled. We said, where's the data? We just started. And they said, well, we want you to feed it to us as you're getting it. And as you remember, you were feeding this information to that group in the White House even before your study was complete. As you were feeding to them, on that, it was June 3rd. Boy, I'm big on dates. June 3rd, 2013, we got a call from the White House and we said, we have seen enough. We're announcing a change in policy tomorrow. We are going to allow money from this fund called the Hardest Hit Fund, which is a fund that was set up for mortgage foreclosure prevention. The Hardest Hit Fund, until we used it for demo, was basically a fund that would go to people who were facing foreclosure, give them additional money, get them out of foreclosure. They'd move the money to the back end of the loan, and hopefully it would stabilize that homeowner. What we came to learn later is the majority of those people sadly, just redefaulted, right? So, and the banks loved it because they got the money they were owed. Well, the banks never lose, do they? They never lose. But anyway, we said, look, it's mortgage foreclosure prevention money. This is a form of mortgage foreclosure prevention. Give us money to tear down houses and we'll prevent mortgage foreclosures. And the White House lawyers had a field day, or I should say they had a nightmare. They had to find a way to fit that money into the new uses, which was the demolition fund. So we had to go through a lot of hoops to use this money, but they freed up $80 million for Ohio uh, in June of 13 and a considerable chunk of change up in Detroit, Michigan, where the, the, where the, the change in policy was announced, as you know. And then additional funds came in the beginning of 16. So you had a big part in that. And in Ohio, um, those funds plus the money. I, I didn't get into the attorney general. Should I tell you about that money too? 
Yeah, I mean, what I'm really curious about, so there's, there's a couple pieces of this that I want to make sure that we accentuate. Like you're, you're mentioning names as you go for sure. And like the team, kind of like the policy infrastructure that you guys set up, like between you and Gus and Frank, like I'm curious of like somehow I want to get back to that, like how you set up an environment where you could have the feed, like the feds could feed money through land banks to distribute them to do the work. Yeah. Right. Well, like team, if we, like, so there's that piece, but there's also, yeah, like the resources flowing from the feds and how you guys set up policy infrastructures to be like feeding mechanisms for, for, our, for state and federal resources to flow through to get the job done at the grassroots level. Like that's like, that's the valuable stuff. Well, that's, well, my job, let me tell you, my job has been made easy. I have a partnership and I've had it since I left office. I have to go back and tell you that the, the land bank bill uh, and a bill before that, which allowed for the expedited foreclosure of vacant and abandoned properties, was written by a brilliant attorney named Gus Frangos. Now, how did I know Gus? Gus served with me in Cleveland City Council for about seven years and then left. And I knew this because... Uh, I knew what a great attorney he was. I knew how capable he was. And when I was in the treasury and was facing all these issues, I I went to him and said, look, you're in private practice. Would you come back and work for me as county treasurer, as a lawyer and a policy advisor to help me get a couple of laws changed at the state level? So the first bill he wrote was House Bill 294. That was back in 2006. And that allowed for an expedited foreclosure of vacant and abandoned properties. The more important bill he wrote was Senate Bill 353, and that was the land bank bill in Ohio. Frank Alexander, who was the former dean, professor of Sam Nunn, professor at Emory Law School, called it a masterpiece and the finest piece of legislation ever written in this area. So Gus wrote that bill. So it was only logical that after we passed that bill in in December of 08, and we started our land bank six months later, that Gus would become the director of the land bank. He was a real estate attorney. And given how important real estate is and the understanding of real estate law to land banks and property, he's been the perfect fit. So in that way, I was fortunate that Gus was able to serve as a director of the land bank and has done a superb job the past 12 years. Now, that was only part of my team. Part of the team also included a man named Frank Ford. Frank uh, is a also a capable attorney, but he is kind of a legend in this issue of vacant property vacant property and vacant property reuse and developing policies to to assist communities to deal with the scourge of vacant properties. He worked for a group called Cleveland Neighborhood Progress, uh, and I worked with him very closely when I was the treasurer. But when we set up the organization I'm with now, Thriving Communities back in March of 11, we snatched Frank away from the Center for, for the, uh, Cleveland Neighborhood Progress uh, because we felt he had such a valuable skill a tool set to bring to our office. And he has been invaluable. And there were others in Cleveland, Kermit Lind, Ed Herman has been invaluable. Ed is an attorney, um, a veteran of the Afghan war, a bright guy went to Fordham, very, very capable attorney. Uh, we just got to know each other when I was still in office. And he came over and joined me early in the infancy of the Thriving Communities Institute. So, And, and, and also, also one of the one of the early members of Dynamo Metrics. I appreciate you for that. <laughs> oh, and so, and so capable. And for me, being able to have somebody. So at the state level, nobody was better than uncovering all these issues at the state level than Gus. At the federal level, it was 
it was people like Ed plowing into the federal code, coming back and interpreting sections of the statute, saying, here's where we are. I mean, for example, in the hardest hit fund and monies that had been spent or not spent under that program, Ed was a master at, at getting into the details of those programs. So, uh, Ed, I'd, I'd like to tell you that I was just as really, really smart guy, but I'd like to think also pretty lucky guy that I knew both Gus and Frank and Ed and our paths intersected at this critical time where we had to deal with the fallout of the foreclosure crisis. And I, and I really like to, I really like to touch on team just during these things because you've had, I mean, in the last, whatever it's been 20 years, 15, 20 years, you've made some significant uh, policy achievements at the national level and at the state level. And so, I mean, you have this team, I mean, other folks in your shop, like, like Robin, Kate, others that have like, like their roles to like, how to like operationalize getting that kind of stuff done. Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to just say, and you know, there's going to be a moment of sadness here. Uh, Robin Thomas, who has worked with me 24 years, passed away tragically unexpected of a heart attack on June 4th. And uh, we're still mourning her loss. She was an amazing woman. She had uh, two degrees from the University of Virginia, one in a master's in education and undergraduate. She also had an MBA. And she came to me through county government because when I became the county treasurer, I knew how critical it was to find somebody who understood all the different pieces of county government work. And I was rec- she was recommended to me by a very, very well-known uh, business uh, men in town and a, and a CPA with uh, Coopers and Librand. He said, you got to find this woman before she leaves because she was preparing to leave. So I hired her. We worked together flawlessly for 14 years. And, you know, you can have great ideas. You can fly at 30,000 feet in government and say, I've got this idea. I want to do this or I want to do that. But at the end of the day, there has to be somebody on the ground, you know, the old boots on the ground thing. Somebody has to be on the ground to take your ideas and operationalize them. And for me, that was Robin Thomas. Then when I left and went over it, she was at the beginning. She was there when the first land bank was started. When I joined the Land Conservancy and I realized that my mission had changed and I was going to be traveling all over Ohio setting up land banks, I was fortunate enough to bring her over. So uh, having somebody on the ground like that, and you know you've worked with her, who understood all the nuances, right, who could go to small counties where the governments were smaller, and I'm not saying they weren't capable, they're all capable, but maybe the sophistication level wasn't there. Robin could go in and make it work for them. So she was just, she was gold. And I miss yeah, her today. So anyway, but you know her because you worked with her yeah, well. I miss her too. She was amazing. There's a, and, and so like, I feel like it's a good moment for, for like the team piece because, so you have this amazing team that's, you know, you have, you have the big picture in mind. You're, you're capturing resources. You see the larger problems in the, in the greater Cuyahoga region and Cleveland and so on and capturing resources to bury the dead, as you say. We, we also identify rehabilitation where, where necessary does similar things to demo sometimes better in the sense that you can, you can continue the revenue off those structures if you can reoccupy them. Like we're doing all this learning, right? The greater Cleveland region has so much to teach the country and the world because you also have like things like VAPAC and Neo can do. And so I'd love like your take on how, because VAPAC is now has a document for how to respond to COVID. I'm not sure if you've seen that. Oh, yet. I have seen it. I have seen it. And you know, it's interesting. Again, just to tell you how visionary Frank Ford is, Frank saw 
I mean, I still can't get my head around COVID, right? I mean, I'm still every day just smacking my head because I keep waiting for for saner minds to prevail, and they're not, as you know. There's there's not. This is going to be around for a long time, Nigel. I don't know how long. Those who say forever, I hope they're wrong, but it's going to be around for at least the next year, year and a half. But Frank, sure. his credit saw this, you know, in the early on, back in March, he said, this is real. This is going to be impactful and it's really going to hurt cities. And just as the last foreclosure crisis, right, gutted in particular African-American neighborhoods, stripped equity, you know, equity that's yet to return in many of those communities. Frank said, it's the same people who are going to get hurt. People that are working class people, people who are uh, people of color. And, and, and who do you think is going to fall behind on mortgage payments? Who do you think is going to get evicted? And, and he saw it and also knew there could be resources that might be available and wrote to get a, a wonderful paper along with the VAPEC team about what steps need to be taken by local, state and federal governments to dull the impact of this crisis. And again, I, that all that credit belongs to Frank Ford and his team. There's a great group of people in VAPEC. So for your listeners, VAPEC stands for the Vacant Action Property Action Vacant and Abandoned Property Action Committee, or maybe it's Action Council. Frank started about 15 years ago when we were in the throes of this foreclosure crisis. He said, we got to find a way to deal with vacant property. It has proved to be a thought leader, not only here, but around the state. And it was VAPEC that pushed me early on and said, we've got to look at land banks as a tool. So all the credit is due to Frank. And, you know, look, let, let's be honest about this. In Cleveland and Detroit, not your hometown or close to your hometown, we have something in common. We're partners in misery. I hate to say that, but, you know, I believe that poorest city in the country might be Detroit and Cleveland a second, or maybe it's flip-flopped. Uh, Cleveland has the high, highest child poverty rate in America. I know for a fact that you know that solving the problem to the extent that we can, dealing with vacant and abandoned properties, cleaning them up, getting houses rehab, is not going to solve problems that cities like Detroit and Cleveland have now faced for generations. You know, I, I, I'm a realist, and I realize that it's not going to solve all the problems that we face. We're talking about generational poverty. We're talking about bad educational systems, poor government. I get all that. But here's what I've come to believe. If cities like Cleveland, Detroit, first of all, my first belief is all land has value. Like maybe not today, but someday, right? But it only has value if you can set the stage with that land. And I would rather see 40,000 vacant lots in Cleveland or 100,000 vacant lots in Detroit than 40,000 vacant and abandoned homes or 100,000 vacant and abandoned homes in Detroit. At least when the land has been cleared, we can start talking about the future repurposing of the land and a new Detroit and a new Cleveland. A realist. We're not, we're not solving all the problems, Nigel, but at least that problem. And look, I'm a former tax collector. And I remember what the impact was on our on our tax collections. It was awful. You know, and who looks to that money? Schools, governments, uh, park systems, libraries. And uh, it's a real problem. And, and so the... And, and so this is like a place where a lot of your experience can get brought to light, I think, Jim, because you, you've you done it, right? Like you've gone through the process, you understand 
how to drive a national initiative or a state initiative and actually bring it back to the point where it's impacting that kid who walks to school and doesn't have to walk by the scary house anymore and can be a little more relaxed and maybe learn that day. Right. So it's like, so it's like all the way up to that little, that little route of like somebody being impacted daily on their walk to school or their walk to the bus stop or whatever. Right. Right. And so to circle back to some of the stories that you're, you're, you're starting to get on maybe the $2 billion adjustment to hardest hit, or I think you said one about the surgeon general, like some of those stories of how, you mobilize congressional resources like people and how you worked state resources and people to actually like create a movement that, that brought resources, not only to your home community, but across the country. Well, those, so those are pretty amazing. Talk about partnerships. So let's talk about the political realities that we face. We had a divided government in Washington for eight years, as you know, um, it was not an easy place to navigate. Uh, we had members of the party that I belong to, Democrats, largely sympathetic. But I realized that if we were going to raise the resource we needed, we had to find a way to get over the partisan differences. So let me start first with the state level. Uh, and I have enormous respect for Ohio's governor, a man named Mike DeWine. Mike DeWine was the attorney general back in 2012 when I went to visit him. He was part of a 50-state lawsuit, right, against the five major banks, not surprisingly, banks that committed uh, mortgage fraud, uh, also were guilty of committing mortgage foreclosure fraud. There was a lawsuit brought against them for those documents being signed by machines, the robo-signing lawsuit, and it resulted in a $25 billion judgment against America's banks. Now, the majority of that money, five major banks, went to people who had been foreclosed illegally. But every state received a discretionary share. Ohio had 93 million. So we had a great lobbying team uh, led by a guy named Josh Rubin, and we, who was able to lobby Republicans because he's a Republican. And he worked for Western Reserve. And I have a blue blood board, by the way, that uh, we've brought into urban issues. And I'm so proud of them because Western Reserve Land Conservancy, until I joined them, was basically a land conservation organization saving land and rural and ex-urban areas. We brought them into the urban mission. So they're a powerful board. We have a powerful lobbyist. We went and saw the Republican Attorney General of Ohio and walked in and said, you're about to get 93 million bucks. For God's sake, give it to us. Don't give it back to the general fund in Ohio. Work with us on taking down vacant and abandoned properties. And to the credit of Mike DeWine, he got it. He gave us our fund, $75 million. He hired us and others to set up a program that leveraged local resources. His commitment raised a total of $122 million. And when it closed down in March of 15, had taken down over 15,000 homes. So at the state level, because Ohio has become a red state, you have to be able to work with Republicans. You have to. And to the credit of Mike DeWine, he, he made it happen. Now, yeah, and that program of DeWine was the one that gave me all my observations to measure the impact from. And the neat thing about that is that that also spurred the Attorney General of Maryland. I have a good friend named Mike Braverman, who's head of the billing department in Maryland. And I went to Braverman and said, hey, go ask your Attorney General for some money. And he did, and he got some. So but so that's at the state level. But, but we also had a, a Democrat in the White House, but we had to find a way 
to break the partisanship in the Senate and the House, which were controlled by the Republican Party. And here's where we get great luck. And it involves somebody from your hometown. Uh, we were able to appeal to Dan Gilbert. Dan, as I said to many people, not only owns Quicken Loans, he not only owns the Cleveland Cavaliers, but he owns downtown Detroit, <laughs> or a lot of it anyway. And he's loyal to his hometown of Detroit. Dan is very, very powerful in the Republican Party. He and his team at Rock Ventures, one of his arms, were incredibly helpful in getting people to move, not so much on the first 80 million, but the second round, billions of dollars, we freed up our little organization with you and others. We could not have done it without Dan Gilbert. Gilbert was on the phone with Shelby, with McConnell, uh, with Hensterling out of the house, with Paul Ryan, with his team. And when we passed that last measure in the third week of December of 15, I knew it was a team effort. And think about it. We were able to get money for places like Detroit and Cleveland. So again, partnerships, finding people who have common interests, and then working with them. We've been lucky, Nigel. We've, we, we've been in the right place at the right time. It's getting a little harder these days. The money is running out. And uh, the configuration in right now, the... What we face in Washington is just, I don't even know how to describe it anymore. Uh, yeah. You know? Yeah. And so those resources, so that was just a shift though. That's why it could happen, right? They didn't need to reallocate or they didn't need to approve new money out of hardest hit fund, correct? No, that's the nice thing. No, neither. The state money was a lawsuit money. So I didn't get money out of the state general fund. Can't claim that. And in the case of the hardest hit funds, it was money already allocated. Back when we um, bailed out the banks in 2008, they created the Troubled Asset Relief Program, $770 billion to prevent the American banking system from collapsing. There was some money in that fund to help homeowners who were in trouble. And that was called the Hardest Hit Fund. And that money was there. And what we did was we, in effect, reallocated existing dollars to demolition. And now we have trillions of dollars pumping in, right? Like, I'm curious your thoughts on this. Like, we have trillions of dollars pumping in to businesses, to people and they're, you know, that are out of work, to unemployment funds, but also to some degree, I think it's like 350 so far billion to state and local government because of our tax revenue shortfalls, right? So my sense yeah. is that there's another bill coming down the pipe for state and local, but it's probably held hostage till after the November elections. I don't know. But I'm curious your thoughts on just like that state of play in terms of all those resources between the CARES Act and then what is uh, what looks like will probably be eventually another state and local bill to assure that states don't states and locals don't go bankrupt. Because a lot of them are white knuckled right now for their budgets. That money is not coming to land banks. Just so here, here's my my feeling about that money is going to keep people's heads above water, right? It will not right. be until there's a change, a complete change of leadership in the House and the Senate, and uh, in, in, in of course the White House next year. I think then Dan Kildee or people like Dan Kildee can make a case to the White House uh, that we have not, we're not finished. So. Think about where we are with this money we've raised. By the way, one last thing. Not only did we get money from the from the uh, state and the feds, 
But here in this county, we convinced the county government to put up $50 million for demolition. And the way we did it, did a study that proved to them that the complete collapse of, of values and an entire swath of this county had shifted that responsibility for the four countywide levies. There are four levies here that we collect on every home in the county. It shifted the burden to other communities. And we proved in effect that you might live in a nice cushy suburb that doesn't have vacancy, but you end up paying because of the way we collect taxes in this county on our park system and our uh, a welfare system and how we collect on our port authority and how we collect on our community college. Anyway. I'm so glad you pointed that out because that was, that was from our research as well, right? Like we said, right. well, maybe and, we don't get return off the demolition because the values are lower inside the city. But if you get the cherry picked one, that's, you know, hurting a lot of value on the suburbs and that one comes down and gets rehab that that creates enough value to do five inside the city. Right. Like it, it pencils out. Right. 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 And it's hard for people to understand. You know, it's hard for people to understand, but the study was called The Cost of Vacancy Everybody Pays. And that resulted in the county committing $50 million. Yeah, that's so good. Good, good one. Thanks for making that. Yeah. So, but here's my hope. My hope is that after November, we can start talking. And so, by the way, the money we've raised so far, we've taken down about 40,000 vacant and abandoned homes formerly homes, residential units in the state of Ohio. We have not touched the abandoned factories and warehouses that are everywhere in this state. This is a state, as you know, that it's, it's a post-industrial state. You know, part of what has been an eye-opener for me, we're in about 58 counties now, and it never fails. I'll visit a county and I'll get the tour and they'll say, we used to do this. We used to make this. This is what used to be a this kind of factory uh, down in a county called Scioto on the Ohio River, Portsmouth, Ohio. Somebody said to me, a commissioner there, you know, we used to employ 6,000 people in this town in the manufacture of shoes and boots. You know what they do now? They have about 30 people who make shoelaces. I'm not kidding. It's a shoelace factory. So my point is that those relics are, first of all, prevent the property from being repurposed. I think psychologically they're damaging. People need to get beyond what used to be there. You know, I don't want to hear what you did in the 40s and the 50s. For God's sake, it's 2020. Let's let's get on with it, right? Take, yeah, yeah. And they're dangerous, as you know. Studies have been done that shows that those places often attract crime. They certainly ruin property values, as you know from your work. So we're not done. We have to keep this these money's coming and it's not because we're looking for a handout. I think we'll prove there'll be a good return on those dollars. I know we've got a massive debt to deal with and we have a long way to go because of the way we've handled this COVID-19 crisis, but we can't let it get in the way of us moving forward on the progress we've made. And my fear is if this crisis ends up putting us two or three years behind on this, you know, I was in the speaker of the house of Ohio, a guy named Larry Householder. Is we had a bill in play there that, unfortunately, because of COVID-19 is not going anywhere, it was going to be allocating money to land banks to do their work. And one of his aides said to me, well, how many vacant and abandoned properties are in Ohio today? And he turned to him in kind of a folksy way. And he said, it don't matter. There'll always be more. And 
<laughs> he's right. I mean, the, so the number is important, but his point was we needed an ongoing stream of revenue that recognizes that just as it's important to do rehab and build new housing and create parks, there has to be money available on a going forward basis to deal with these blighting influences. So that's our hope. Right. Right. And I have to tell you, you know, I spend a lot of time with the land bank network and the work they've done. So, you know, I co-authored a book with Gus Frangos that will be out in uh, September called the land bank revolution. And it talks right. about your book, plug your book. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. Somebody said, why didn't you write it? And I said, well, in part, because I think it's a pretty amazing story. And I, I, I sometimes don't believe it myself. More selfishly speaking, I've come to learn in politics. If you don't take credit for it, somebody else will. But the reality is we just wanted to let people know that, you know, with all that goes wrong with government, that all the things maybe haven't done right, there are the, there's a group of dedicated folks in this little town called Cleveland, Ohio, that put together an effort, uh, a movement that took off around the state and we think has had a national impact. And we're proud of it. In fact, the back of the, the last part of the book, there's about 13 little vignettes, chapters of different counties around the state that have land banks and what they've done. So that book will be out. It's going to be out through a company called Belt Publishing. And uh, if you go online, look up Belt Publishing, you will probably find the book there. Uh, I think people are already taking orders. Uh, uh, I, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I'm also told you know, the proceeds of this go to the Western Reserve Land Conservancy. So there is a, a big company that shall not be mentioned, and you know which one it is, that sells a lot of books, but uh, they also take a lot of the profits. So our hope is we can get people either to our website um, at uh, the Western Reserve Land Conservancy or Bell Publishing uh, and uh, see more in the way of uh, dollars for the Land Conservancy. So That's great. For our listeners that aren't familiar with why land banks exist please give your summary like your version of like why it's necessary and how so, they work a land bank is a quasi-public corporation that deals with vacant and abandoned properties it is empowered in many cases like in ohio with extraordinary powers to take back tax delinquent vacant properties and it has a revenue stream so why do we need a land bank we needed a land bank, and I think we'll need them for a long time, is because the real estate picture in many communities around this country, basically, we're, we're like the wild, wild west, right? State government wasn't regulating these practices. The federal government wasn't regulating them until it was too late. And we found this vacuum where there was nobody there out, you know, going to bat for the public. So you'd see these properties being foreclosed with a phony mortgage, and then brought back into the federal government, who would then sell them back out of the market where somebody would take it and more often than not do nothing to restore the property, but try to find some poor sucker who might buy that property. We, in effect, needed a referee. We needed a traffic cop. We needed somebody who would go to bat for the public. And it wasn't without controversy, and it's still not. There are people saying, you don't have the right to do that. Who are you? Who should give this organization the right to do this? Here's what I know. Land banks have added, you know this because you've done one of the critical studies here in Cuyahoga County, land banks have added billions of dollars of value in markets like Cleveland and other cities around the Midwest. They have, in effect, stepped in where this vacuum was. They, in effect, have become a, 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 an entity that goes to bat for the public and doing the right thing. 
And um, I, I just, you know, these speculative bubbles, they come up all the time. It was the SNL crisis. Then it was this that horrible crisis back in you know, 2000 and 2010, resulting in the Great Recession. So quasi-public corporation, no, it's made up of government officials, but it's not within the governmental structure. It's outside of it. And they're also members of the public on the board. And in Ohio, the most important thing is that two things. One is that when a property is taxed, delinquent, and vacant, the land bank can take that property quickly as opposed to letting it languish for the purposes of repurposing the property. And land banks have a revenue stream. A little complicated, but in Ohio, when a tax bill is delinquent, there's a penalty. Land banks take a little piece of the penalty, not the bill, but just the penalty. And that money helps to fund land bank operations and keeps them strong. So and that's, and that's really like the teeth of what separates the Ohio bill from other states' land bank laws, right? Yeah. Like the fact that the fact that they have consistent and steady uh, revenue stream out of that out of that penalty resource, the, the tax penalty resources, they can plan, right? Like they, they know that they can have a consistent staff, things like that, right? Like that. It seems so obvious, but you guys are the only ones that got it through. Yeah. And, and, and you know, they can also, what we, you know, we talk a lot about tearing houses down, but you know from the studies you've done, the land bank here has been involved in the rehabilitation of about 2,300 properties now. Those are 2,300 properties that pay taxes, families are living in them, and most importantly, they stabilize the neighborhood around them. So it's not just about demolition. It's about rehab taking a property that uh, if it were abandoned much longer, could not be rehabilitated. Land banks step up, grab it, and they rehabilitate it. And it's, it's, it's so strategic too. I mean, you, so you have, so when you get those rehabs through, you got that nice revenue stream, people back in the property, right? And state neighborhood stabilization effects and, and all of those things that, that help the neighborhood. But something well, we learned from our, from our work is also that economic development activity. There's a lot of economic development. Activity. Oh, it's a job creator. It's a job creator. So you know the story because you were here. There was a, a you know, Amazon is everywhere, as you know. We have two big fulfillment centers in this county. But one of the largest shopping centers in America had gone bust. You know, there's that great website, deadmalls.com. And Randall Mall, before the Mall of the America, was the largest shopping center in America. Been abandoned for many years. And the developer that wanted to put the fulfillment center on the site was able to pick up three of the parcels, but two of them, Macy's and Dillard's, which were millions of dollars in tax arrearages, refused to work with the developer, saying, you have to pay us. Pay you what? You're tax delinquent. You owe millions of dollars. Land Bank had the authority to go in, foreclose on that property. Now, if Macy's and Dillard's wanted to stop it, they could have. All they had to do was pay their property taxes. Of course, they did. So the land bank assembled that, helped to make that deal work. That that was almost ready to go to an outlying county at, for the, uh, on a Greenfield site. But instead, it's in Randall. It's in North Randall. It's a 40-acre building. It employs 2,200 people, and it stabilized a couple of struggling inner ring suburbs near it, including one community called Maple Heights. So that happened because we had a land bank. That's right. I mean, those huge success stories, those are just. Yeah. And there are um, stories like that, Nigel, all over the state. I'm in Athens County, the home of Ohio University. And 
I'm always learning lessons, not just the big counties. It's really creative guy there named uh, Rick Wasserman and Chris Shamil, the county commissioner. And they're just doing little deals with properties that have been abandoned, tax delinquent. But what we're learning is if you can take a property, wipe out the uncollected debt, which means it's never going to be collected. It's really what they call a phantom receivable. If you can get control of that property, you'd be amazed how many people are willing to take a, a risk with that property. They're willing to add it to their own. They're willing to build a new home. Um, so like I said, I'm learning lessons all the time. It's not just the big deals in big counties, but it's the little life altering deals in little counties as well. I'm so a question for you. I mean, I know that and this circles back to COVID a little bit is, is like the, there, there's going to be some likely housing issues that are going to shake out over time as a result of COVID, right? We got whatever it is. 20, 30 million people out of work in the service industry that not all those jobs are going to be there when they go back. A lot of them, you know, homeowners, a lot of them renters, and a lot of landlords aren't getting their rent, right? And there's these eviction moratoriums and all these different pieces. And so all that to say, my sense of it is that mom mom and pop landlords are going to get hit harder this time, like in terms of a housing impact, and there's going to be some eviction. We already had pretty pretty large numbers of evictions unfolding regularly in this country um, for the lower quartile of, of incomes and uh, communities of color and all that. And so I'm, I'm really curious about your thoughts on that. Like, well, the, the COVID-19 uh, report done by Frank Ford and VAPAC talks about that. I mean, what we, you brought all this money into the economy, right? Just hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars, right? How much of it was set aside in a thoughtful manner for those people in the lower quartile saying, we're going to give you rent relief? You know, instead of just sending people that check, which is fine, get it. But what about a program that would provide rent relief to prevent evictions? And this time, this time, we have to go to banks and say, you can't be quick to foreclose because you don't want to be in the position of owning this property. Work with work with us on trying to find ways to forestall a foreclosure and somebody lost a job for at least a year or two. Then if you want to talk about a relief program from government, it should be some way to, to incentivize because, you know, they never do it for nothing, but incentivize banks to, to, to hold off the foreclosures. Or like basically build a financial argument to the bank that if they let their asset go, or if they if they foreclose on their asset, they're more likely to lose more. Well, you remember what happened in the last crisis? They were they would have been so much better off leaving homeowners in those homes to guard their asset, right? Just say we're not going to foreclose for now. We're going to hold off, stay in the house, maintain it, but instead, you know. Terms of the uh, the trust agreements with those uh, purchasers of those bonds, they were quick to go in. They foreclosed, house went empty, and you know what happened. Depending on the neighborhood, you know it was stripped, right? And they were better off keeping a family in there, would have stabilized the neighborhood and kept property values more intact. But under unpack that for a sec. The the pressure from the bondholders, how did that work? You know, we, we always talk about. Uh, you know, it's a wonderful life and Bailey savings and loan and the good old days when you walked to the corner SNL and you got your mortgage and they knew you and you had a job and 
And then, as you know, the model changed in the late 80s, early 90s. We began to take these mortgages from the primary bank and sell them off to people who would package them in bonds and sell them to investors all over the world. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the complication it became more complicated because there was less leeway often when a when a bond or a, a mortgage was placed into a, a, a bond that said, you know, if, for us to take this mortgage, here are the conditions that have to be met. So it's it's complicated, as you know. The whole issue of security yeah. and the world has changed, but um, we have to try to find a way to be smart about the impending foreclosure crisis, which, quite frankly, is here. The uh, the delinquency reports I know people who are already behind at least one month on their mortgage, I believe, since February, have tripled. So we got work cut out for us. Yeah, I mean, that's the other part that I wonder about. If you have any insight on or thoughts, is like, so folks are so we have this high unemployment rate right now. We got another another wave potentially coming down the pike, right? It looks like um, young people doing their thing summertime, um, and we'll see how that how that impacts the spread, right? It looks like not so good in Texas and Florida right now, in Arizona, right? And so my sense is there's going to be another pullback. People like we'll see, but like people are going to pull back again. The well, there's already been a pullback on the, the first way in a lot of these communities. There's already been a pullback in, in California, in Florida, in, in Texas, right. right? And so that, that to me, like that immediately translates into a slower return, even if it is three years or four, never, like of a lot of service jobs that are just not going to exist anymore. Right. And so there's all this unemployment resources that are like, that are flowing through from the feds in the States that are going to dry up. Right. Yeah. And so that's, that's something that I'm, I'm curious if you've put any thought into, because that, 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 that thing makes me nervous, right? Like, I'm like, what are we going to do about that when there's no more unemployment check? But there's no jobs. Well, what about the, what about the the world that's changed around uh, commercial real estate? What about the fact that a lot of these restaurants and stores have closed, never to reopen? What about the fact that people have been working from home? Some would argue even more successfully than being in an office. What, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm a member of that group. <laughs> well, what happens, Nigel, to the hundreds of millions of feet of office space where people? when it's all over, whatever that looks like, whenever that will be, when you're the CEO of a company and says, you know, do we need 100,000 square feet of office space? Can't these people work at home? Yeah, I mean, we did it. We gave up 3,000 square feet in downtown Ann Arbor. We are, we're figuring out a new way of being. There's going to be a change until there's widespread vaccination. There's just going to be a change in the economy. In my sense, is that down, like commercial downtowns are going to get get impacted and need a holding place, right? Like, who's going to hold those for safekeeping until things somewhat normalize? And, and you know, and there'll be so much of that space, uh, it won't be land banks. I mean, land banks might play a minor role. We're talking about uh, who knows a multi hundred billion dollar dilemma. And I don't, I don't. That's on my pay grade, Nigel. I don't know. We better get smart people figuring this out soon. I mean, in some cases, in some of the office spaces and places like Cleveland, where there's been a growth 
in people moving back to the core and living downtown. I think some of the space will be converted to residential units for sure, mm-hmm. but only so much, right? What about Manhattan? What about New York, Manhattan, where you've got tens of millions of square feet of office space? It's, I mean, it's it's going to be an interesting shakeout. I, I I hope you'll come back on the show and as as it unfolds and we can continue talking about it. It's to run into like being an economist, like trying to be a predictor of like what's happening in urban economies, right? And it's like, how can we see what's coming around the corner so that we can properly plan for community development, economic development, civic engagement, you know, create softwares where folks can talk and communicate and engage and, and get things done with their local government. There's some big unanswered questions. And so that's, I mean, that's a big part of ahead of the curve is we're trying to address those things that we just still don't know. So we just, all we can do is talk about it and try to position policies so that we can run resources from the feds and through the states down to the locals yeah. during the interim. Yeah. I mean, that's what we're trying to figure out, man. Tumultuous so, times. Uh, tumultuous times. I'm, uh, yes, sir. 65 this I, year, and I, I keep telling my kids that I have you know, I've been through the assassination of a president. I've seen the Vietnam War. And I've seen a lot of really, including 911. I said, but this COVID-19 is different. I mean, when they killed the president, right? I mean, there was a new president and we mourned and grieved and maybe that scar is never healed. But but this one is going to have tentacles that will last for a long, long, long time. And I don't know. I We got to figure it out. Got to figure it out. But I, you know, the uh, I think the unemployment rate, the claim today is 11%. I don't know if that's right or not, but I think the unemployment rate is going to be high for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll we'll be working to tap your brain as we learn more. And well, I want to thank you for all you've done with our efforts. Uh, that Sid Fund money would not have happened without the work of Dynamo Metrics and Nigel Griswold. So, thank you. I appreciate that, Jim. It's I, I'm so glad our careers aligned. It's been really fun. I appreciate you coming on the head of the curve, Jim. And thank you. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ahead of the Curve, and special thanks to Jim for joining us today. Next week, we'll be joined by Shantara Hardy, co-founder and CSO of Civic Eagle. Shantara is an award-winning policy professional and serial entrepreneur with over 15 years of experience leading work in the areas of government affairs.